All right, well, what a wonderful reminder in the singing of everything that we have in Christ, that He's the one who has accomplished the victory. He's released us from our sins, our chains are broken, and the life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself up for us. That's the heartbeat of that song out of Galatians 2.20. We are over in Ephesians 5 uh, this week, and we're we are just uh, plowing through the book of Ephesians rather quickly, and we're uh, keeping in line with that. We're going to be in verses 3 to 14. I'm actually going to read verses 1 to 14 um, and overlap the last two verses that we covered last week. So let's read this. T- I'll read it. I don't, when I say read this together, I don't mean all of us together. I'm going to read it, and you can listen. Um, Galatians, I mean Ephesians 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So we're going to stop right there. I was wanting to keep going, but we're going to stop right there. We're going to cover this section talking about walking as children of light. And we've seen in this second half of the book of Ephesians that Paul uses a number of uh, phrases, walking in wisdom, uh, walking in love, walking here in light as children of light. Uh, He's using this imagery of walking as a metaphor for our life in Christ. And uh, Jason referenced it earlier, Ephesians 2.10, that we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so now what Paul is doing is he's taking the foundation he built in the first three chapters of Ephesians and saying everything that, that the Father has done to love us, to bring us to Jesus, everything that He's given us in Christ in chapter 1, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, including the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is uh, the, the sign of the new covenant, and he's tore down the dividing wall of partition, and he's made us one, and now we're able to draw near to the Father, and the Father has prepared good works that we would walk in them. The, the second half of this book is simply what it looks like to walk in these good works. And what we're, to, what we're doing here this week is looking at this idea of walking as the children of light. 
And it brings up a question in my mind, what are we to do with our culture that we live in? Are we to retreat from it? Are we to engage it? How are we to be in the world and not of the world? Because the passage before us is pretty blunt. It's pretty down to earth, isn't it? And so we have this challenge of what it means to walk as children of light. And, and, and it's, it's this challenge of being in the world and not of the world. It's like telling a child to clean up the gar- garbage, but don't touch the dirt. How do we not get messy in the process of being in the world? And in this passage, there's only one command in verse 11 in this section, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but doesn't that seem a bit at odds with what we heard about exposing the deeds of darkness? So Paul, help us out here. What are we to do with the, the culture? Retreat, embrace, a combination of the two? How do we reconcile this? And, and isn't this the challenge growing up in a sinful world, a fallen world, and how to be salt and light and witnesses without getting consumed by the world, drawn into the world, becoming like the world. And, and the reason I wanted to read the first two verses, we're only going to cover 3 to 14 because I placed verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 with the sermon last week, but notice what he's saying, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love And he says this walking in love uh, is a picture of uh, rooted and grounded in how Christ loved us and gave himself up for us and that he was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And that language of fragrant offering and sacrifice where the Old Testament sacrifice, the burnt offering, the smells would rise up like an aroma to God and be pleasing. And that Old Testament sacrificial system seems foreign to us until you realize what they were sacrificing was animals. Beef, lamb, on a barbecue. That aroma is pleasing. Not just to God, but to me. I want to go use my Traeger right after this and cook it up because it just makes the mouth water. And so what, a, what an idea about this, this joy, this pleasure of what a sacrifice represented that this... This idea of worship engaging what pleases God. And so Paul transitions from walking in love and everything Christ has done for us as a fragrant offering to then us doing the same and walking as children of light. And I would say just right before we dig into verse 3 that we are engaged in a worship war right now. And I don't mean music style or instruments. Whether you like the cajon or not, you know, we had the drums before. I'm not talking about that kind of worship war of the 1980s where we were arguing over instruments and melody and all of that type of thing. Always picking on the drummers, aren't I, Jack? It's always the drummers. So what, what am I talking about? I'm talking about a war of worship that is rooted in our affections and desires. What are we loving? What are we desiring? What are we pursuing? Is it worship of God or worship of the world? and the idols in it and this is at the heart of Paul he basically says in verse 5 that all of these things amount to idolatry and more on that in a moment but these two sins that Paul is going to mention in this passage lust and greed they characterize darkness that's not a fragrant aroma but rather a stench And these two sins can often become a perfume to God's people 
drowning them not in a fragrant aroma, but in the stench of darkness. And that's what Paul's concerned about for these, this Ephesian church and by application to us. And so, verses 3 to 7, Paul reminds them the fruit of darkness is death. Verse 3, sexual immorality, all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. This opposite of Christ's sacrifice in verse 2 is what we see in verse 3, this self-indulgent sensuality, a life completely opposed to imitating God. And he uses three words, sexual immorality, which is the Greek word porneia, any kind of sex act outside of marriage, impurity, unrestrained sexual behavior, and covetousness or ruthless greed, this insatiable desire to have more. And if there's a progression to Paul's words here, it's moving from the outward manifestation of sin in sexual immorality to the inward cravings of the heart in greed. Paul is saying that all of these things are fueled to the flame in our lives of idolatry. That's what he's going to summarize in verse 5. That the sexually immoral, the impure, those who are covetous, those who are greedy, that is an idolater. Those people who practice idolatry as a lifestyle have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Why are these two things linked? I think the reason why Paul is picking up on lust and greed is that the consequence of these two actions, you're telling God that what He's provided is not enough. So God created sex, and He created it good in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. Anything else outside of that is not what God intended. And so pursuing sexual immorality outside of the context of a marriage between a man and a woman is basically telling God, what you provided is not enough to satisfy me. Likewise with greed. Much more broadly, that if we're coveting what others have that we don't have, if we want what they have and we want to pursue it to gain it by sinful means and even the desire to want it, to, to, to be greedy for it, is saying, God, what you've given me in my life today is not enough. I'm not satisfied with what you've given me. And what do both of these things say? God, you're not actually for me. You're not giving me what's good for me. You're withholding, and so I have to pursue it another way. Paul moves on to speak of sexually sinful speech in verse 4. No filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking. They're out of place. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. Sometimes these obscenities, these Crude joking and foolish talk. The the Greek word uh, for foolish talk is moralagia, moron, moros, and logos word, stupid speech. I mean, we don't even need to know Greek to know what those two words are, right? Like, we know what he's getting at here. Foolish speech. These are culturally acceptable. Look at the entertainment industry. Not only are they acceptable, they're meant to bring us entertainment and joy sometimes even endorsed by fellow Christians. And what we need to see are greedy and immoral addictions for what they are. They're worshiping in the temple of a foreign God whose promises are empty. 
Paul says it's an issue of worship. It's an issue of idolatry. And when you pursue greed, when you pursue sexual immorality, you're worshiping at the temple of a foreign God whose promises are empty. Why? Because that God will never satisfy and never deliver and never bring you what you want. Instead, He will bring you regret and sorrow. Only Christ satisfies. Only at the Father's right hand is there fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. It's why C.S. Lewis in that now famous quote says, why would you settle for mud pies in the slum when a holiday at sea is awaiting you? A banquet on the ocean is awaiting you. Why would you go eat mud pies in the slum? That when you settle for the things of the world and these passions, you're settling for second best. They bring temporary pleasure, but not eternal lasting pleasure. In contrast, the response of the child of light is to offer up to God thanksgiving in verse 4. I'm not using my words as weapons, as means of tearing down or means of approving sin. Instead, I'm reminding myself that God has given me everything and so I'm thankful to Him that He has given me what's good. And if I don't have something, it's because He's deemed that's what's best for me. And so I'm going to thank Him even in my poverty. I'm going to thank Him even in the lack. I'm going to thank Him Because He's the one who is good and does good and the one who satisfies the soul. If you've experienced God's grace in Christ, you know that your response is worship. It's the response of gratitude for who He is and what He's done, particularly in our Savior Jesus. It's what we sang about. And to know that that I've been created anew in Christ, not for sin, but for holiness. To know that no sin will satisfy me and have ultimate power over me because of the Lord Jesus, then I'm filled with thankful worship. It reminds me in the Old Testament of those stones of remembrance. Ebenezer. We, We only know Ebenezer Scrooge. He wasn't a very thoughtful remembrance person at first, was he? But... Even etzer in Hebrew is a stone of help. God is a stone of help. And, and if you remember in the Old Testament, the stories, what Israel was told to do was they were to take those stones. The very first occasion was when they crossed the River Jordan. And they were to take those Ebenezer stones, those stone of helps, and stick them in the river. And the reason they were to do it was in days to come when they brought their kids and walked by the river with their kids and pointed to the stones, they would say, this is how far God has brought us. He's been faithful to us. He brought us through the Jordan River. He brought us to the walls of Jericho and the walls came down. He took us into the promised land. These stones of remembrance. And then the capstone, of course, is this Passover meal in the Old Testament where they were to every year remember what God had done by delivering them out of Egypt and bringing them into the promised land. We have communion that we take every week as a remembrance of who Jesus is and and what He's done for us to remind us this is how far God has brought us and we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians 1.3. And what does that do? That reminds us that those idols in the world, they didn't save us. They didn't deliver us. What did they do? They captivated us. They enslaved us. They weighed us down with chains, but the chains are gone because Christ died and was buried and rose again and set us free from the law of sin and death. Think of those times in your own life where God has been faithful to you. 
like a stone of remembrance. I can think he saved me at nine years old, 40 years ago now. I can't believe it. I'm getting old, I feel like. And I know some of you would say I'm still young. Thank you. And then at 19, I have this very vivid memory of him scourging me as a father would discipline a son and teaching me not to be ruled by my emotions. And then he brought me a wife at 21. He drove me kicking and screaming into ministry at 25 years old. He providentially worked out saving my youngest daughter's life 14 years ago when she had to have heart surgery when she was newborn. And he brought me through unemployment during COVID. Very hard time in my personal life. And not as hard as some have experienced, but for me it was like a stone of remembrance that he brought me through and delivered me. And I know you have those in your life and we, we love to tell those stories and I want to hear them from you because this is how God is faithful. This is what reminds us that what we're believing is true and yes and amen in Jesus and He does deliver His people and He is satisfying and He is all sufficient and He's all we need. And we don't need to give in to the lies of the world that, that this greed or this lust is going to somehow satisfy and make us happy and give us peace and joy. And these warnings, they come from a loving Father, verses 5 to 7. He says, uh, verse 5, be sure of this, everyone who's sexually immoral, impure, covetous, is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Now, he's been using this word sons throughout Ephesians in a very specific way. In chapter 2, he had said, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins are sons of disobedience. But God, who's rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And now he says, we are sons of the living God. We're inheriting everything with Jesus. We've been seated in the heavenly realms, chapter 2, with Christ. And we're going to inherit all things. And he had said in 5.1, be imitators of God as beloved children. So he's not telling us Christians that we are sons of darkness. He's saying, no, your beloved children, verse 1, don't act like the sons of disobedience because they're headed to the grave and don't partner with them. Don't join in with them. They don't have the inheritance like you do. Their ongoing, continuous, sinful lifestyle of immorality and impurity and greed excludes them from the kingdom. It's an issue of worship. Now, Paul's smart here. He's wise here. He knows that Christians can and do struggle with these things. That's why he's warning them. This cannot be our lifestyle. Do not become partners with them, verse 7. See, we may think temporarily that we gain pleasure or possessions by pursuing our lusts and greed but the reality is we may lose everything that's what paul's warning what an incredible thought that if anyone teaches otherwise is deceiving you their words are empty thinking that you could join in with lust and greed and give into this and think it's no problem because this is what god does is he forgives What does Paul mean by partnering with them in verse 7? Well, he doesn't mean we're to have no contact with them at all. That's not what he's getting at. Otherwise, 
He had told the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5.10, you'd have to leave the world. When he says we're not to partner with them, we're not to share with them in their immorality. We cannot be partners in their sin. This is at the heart of what it means to be in the world and not of the world. And he's making this contrast from verses 3 to 7 because his main point and the command is in verse 11, but the, the main point is verses 8 to 14 that the fruit of life is of light is life the 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 fruit of darkness is death and the fruit of light is life so he's really just contrasting the old man the new man putting off and putting on the same thing he was doing in chapter four paul gives a positive reason in verse eight not to partner with them at one time you were darkness but now you're light in the lord so walk as children of light because of the mighty change that occurred at salvation the new birth you've been as he says in colossians 1 delivered out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son here he says you were once darkness now you're light and this has taken place in the lord you're light in the lord and because you're light walk as children of light and because you're light and you're walking as children of light there are three results in these following verses verse 9 light is going to be reflected in your life for the fruit of light is found in all that's good and right and true goodness we've been created for the purpose of good works ephesians 2 10 to walk in them there's a good-heartedness towards others contrasted with malice righteousness a quality of god himself honoring god's standards and living a holy life and truth speaking the truth in love chapter 4 verse 15 because truth is in jesus chapter 4 verse 21 displaying integrity and dealing honestly and speaking truthfully in this fruit divine activity and human responsibility are perfectly balanced we are light in the lord now walk as children of light it reminds me what he commanded the philippians to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God is at work in you to work into will according to His good pleasure. Verse 10, we see that not only is the result that light is going to be reflected out of our lives into the lives of others through righteousness and truth and goodness, but also we discover or discern what pleases the Lord. Verse 10, try to discern, discover what is pleasing to the Lord. The word dokimazo in the Greek is this idea of putting to the test, examining to, to see if it's, if it's good, if it's true. It's parallel to the idea of Paul in Romans 12 to be transformed by the renewing of their minds so they may be able to test and approve the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. In fact, this is what Paul had told them in chapter 4. You learned Christ a certain way. You heard Him. Not just you heard about Him, you heard Him when you came to Christ to, to put off and to put on. The focus of the truth of the Gospel is the yardstick by which we discern and test what is pleasing to the Lord. So even in your weakness, in your frailty, you can have great hope that you can know that you can please God as a Christian because you're light in the Lord. Third, he says, we no longer participate in the fruitless deeds of darkness, verse 11, but instead expose them. 
You see, he's really just taking this metaphor of light and darkness and saying light produces goodness and righteousness and truth. And darkness only produces works that are useless, unproductive, and sterile. And so in exposing the darkness, we're exposing dark words, works rather, dark works, not dark people. I'm making a little nuance here because sometimes we can think of these things as we're exposing the darkness of people. No, we're living in such a way to glorify God that their works are being exposed as dark. But we're living in the world and not of the world in such a way, hopefully to, through the gospel, bring them to the light. Instead, exposing them. We're to live a godly lifestyle and show evil to be evil, but it doesn't mean withdrawing from the world completely. And when he says have nothing to do means what he had said earlier, partnering with them, partaking together, fellowshipping with them. So the warning is to look at the world and say, are we exposing it or enjoying it? Are we influencing or being influenced by the world? Are we pleasing God or self? Are we worshiping our father or idols? And that's an issue of the heart, isn't it? And that's the challenge. We're called to remain here to be salt and light. I, I know I've said it too many times, but we can do everything else better in heaven. The one thing we can't do better is be on mission sharing the gospel, being ambassadors in our community. And just by living life to the glory of God, we're going to, by nature of being children of light, expose the darkness. But hopefully exposing the darkness brings healing to those. <coughs> yes, some will turn away and reject the gospel, but others will come because Jesus is the good shepherd and his sheep hear his voice and they follow him. He says in verse 12, these deeds of darkness are too shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. So the reason Paul says that is you can't even talk about them. Why would you partner with them in it? But verse 13, anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. The light not only exposes, it transforms, verse 13. It becomes visible, and anything that becomes visible is light. I think this is the hope that Paul's saying, is that the light is so transformative that not only does it expose the darkness, but it transforms those practicing those deeds into children of light by sharing the gospel. That's why he told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. A faithful marriage, a pure life, a content lifestyle, gracious speech, that will do far more to expose the deeds of darkness than any partnership with the culture. That's what Paul's getting at. It doesn't take super Christians with a super platform having incredible influence to change the culture. A faithful marriage, a pure life, a content lifestyle, a gracious speech, that's going to transform the culture. Because it will bring people out of darkness and into light just as the gospel did with us. That's incredibly hopeful. And what Paul does is he follows up this teaching with a hymn. Verse 
14. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now this hymn is a combination of two quotations from Isaiah in chapter 26 and chapter 60. And, and actually, Paul has been reflecting on the book of Isaiah throughout. If you turn back to chapter 2, verse 13, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In verse 17, He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. That's Isaiah 57, verse 19. Over in chapter 4, verse 30, when he said, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's an allusion to Isaiah 63, 10. Chapter 5, verse 14, as we just heard, Isaiah 26, 19, and Isaiah 60, verses 1 to 2, and he's going to have one more in chapter 6, when he says in verses 14 to 17, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness as your, and as shoes for your feet, putting on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Isaiah 59, 17 again. In fact, turn over, turn over there for a second to Isaiah 59. He, he's been... Uh, kind of in this section from uh, 57 to 60 in his thinking. I almost wonder if those were the scrolls he had in mind as he was writing the book of Ephesians because in 57 verse 16, um, I'm sorry, 59, I got that backwards, 59, 17, he says, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak and according to their deeds so he will repay. This is talking about the Father, Yahweh, coming and bringing judgment. But then going into chapter 60, verse 1 and 2, Arise, shine, for the light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So this imagery of darkness and light is in Isaiah in this section, and it's this great hope that though the world is covered in darkness and God's judgment is coming, God is bringing salvation along with His coming. And the light is going to shine and it's going to reach the nations. He had had the servant songs throughout this section of Isaiah, the four servant songs talking about his Messiah. We know Isaiah 53, the famous suffering servant, in our place bruised, wounded for our transgressions, right? He was bruised for our iniquities. This lamb who was silent before his shearers. In Isaiah, the glory of the Lord rises over Zion like a sun and brings about a transformation of the Lord's people. In Paul and Ephesians, he's singing about the conversion of God's people moving from darkness to light. We heard it in our Scripture reading. Uh, John in his Gospel talks about it the same way that believing the Gospel is moving from darkness to light. What a beautiful picture. See, Paul does not have a defeatist attitude towards society and the culture. 
Christ is the light who has summoned readers to wake up and rise from the dead. He's shown on them so that they've become light in the Lord and as children of light, they're to shine as a beacon exposing the darkness around ultimately so that those who sit in darkness may be attracted to the light and even choose to enter it. That's Paul's vision and picture that he's putting out here. And so when he tells the church, don't participate in the darkness. Be what you are in Christ. Live as children of light. Be a beacon, a city on a hill. Jesus used this imagery, didn't he? No one hides their light under a bushel, to use an old, when I was a kid, King James phrase. We don't put a, something over the top of the candle to hide it. No, the reason we have a light is so we can see in the dark. We are that light, that city on a hill, that beacon shining saying, oh, that you would come and find true joy and satisfaction. The lusts of this world, the lusts of your flesh, the boastful pride of life, the greed, that doesn't bring joy and peace and satisfaction. That brings regret and sorrow. That brings shame. That's like ashes in the mouth. Instead, come to Jesus and find everything that you've been longing for in Him. See, and those of us who've tasted of the Lord that He's good, those of us who've experienced this, this reminder doesn't terrify us. It, it's, we say, yes, of course. We found that to be true. This is how we learned Christ, chapter 4. We learned to put off sin and to put on Jesus. We learned Him this way when we came to Him. And of course, that kind of life is a life that's full of joy. And maybe we do need the reminder to repent of sin, to stop hiding these sins of lust and greed. Those who practice that kind of lifestyle prove to be in the darkness and will not inherit the kingdom of God, Paul says. It's sobering. But what a hope we have in this passage. Thinking of Trinity Church and the mission we have in the community to be salt and light. Light always wins out over the darkness. Darkness is just the absence of light. And so, may we walk as children of light. Father, thank You for this time and Your Word. What a reminder. This world, that's all it offers up. It offers up empty promises. Promising to satisfy the lust and greed of the hearts of men. But it never delivers. Instead, we have a gospel message. We have an offer that has proven faithful over and over and over again. At your right hand is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. You've proven yourself faithful to me for these past 40 years over and over and over again. May you encourage my brothers and sisters to not grow weary in well-doing. To not give in to the desires of the flesh, thinking that they will satisfy, but to be reminded of what's true in the gospel, what's true, everything that they have in Christ, the inheritance waiting for them, the, the hope laid up, the treasure laid up for them in heaven, unperishable, undefiled. Thieves won't break in and steal. Moth and rust won't wear it out and destroy it. 
it is certain and sure, as our Lord Jesus said. Where our treasure is there, our heart will be also. Tune our hearts to long for the treasure that is you, that is Christ. By your Spirit, do this work, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.